Welcome to WFUV's What's What. It's Monday, August 15th. What's What is a daily podcast that explores current events, culture, news, and hot topic issues in the New York tri-state area. And includes features and interviews exclusively from WFUV. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Christina Lulich. Here are today's headlines. There's some big news for New York City commuters today. And it's going to be a game changer for sure. The Long Island Railroad is adding a third track starting today for commuters between the city and Nassau County. The LIRR wants to boost their capacity and maximize their efficiency during peak hours. The railroad estimates that the new track could expand ridership by 50%. The first section of the 10-mile track will run between Floral Park and Garden City. Eventually, it'll run all the way to Hicksville. It's all part of city officials' plan to reduce congestion in the city. Another way the city plans to do this is by putting a congestion pricing plan in place. So, Christina, this new plan would tax anyone entering Lower Manhattan 9 to $23. That's anywhere south of 60th Street. But, David, the tax part of the congestion plan has some people worried their commutes are going to get a lot more expensive. New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer and New York Congress member Nicole Maliotakis are hosting a press conference this afternoon to discuss their concerns with congestion pricing. Bronx residents woke up to some sad news today. A vehicle hit and killed a four-year-old riding a motorized scooter. The four-year-old and his father were riding on the moped when they collided with a car in Kingsbridge Heights. There's been a 27% increase in moped accidents since last year, according to data from NYC Crash. The driver was taken into custody for not having a valid license. The investigation is ongoing, but it brings concerns people have about scooters, mopeds, and e-bikes on the road. Yeah, Christina, it's actually a lot more complicated. For example, NYC Crash collects data for accidents that involve scooters, mopeds, and e-bikes. Hundreds of people have been injured in scooter-related accidents between January and the end of July, but it isn't clear how they define these three vehicles. The city's Department of Transportation tries to distinguish between the three on their website. For example, people can ride e-bikes and scooters in bike lanes or on streets where the speed limit is under 30 miles an hour. But because there's a gray area between those and mopeds, people don't always know what rules they've got to follow. The city has already started adding more bike lanes around the five boroughs, but critics are saying there should be more restrictions for scooters. Stephen Colbert's The Late Show is losing its band leader, John Baptiste. Batiste led the late-night talk show's jazz band, Stay Human, for seven years. He just recently won multiple Grammys, including Album of the Year. Colbert said he's sad to see Batiste go, but he said he can't wait to have him back as a guest with his next hit record. Here's a story on such an early morning We were yawning, yeah, we were tired and hungry And people staring, they said that we would make it City Island is a coastal community in the Bronx on the southern side of Pelham Bay Park. You can get there by way of the City Island Bridge, which connects the island to the rest of the Bronx. Given its location, residents in the New England-style neighborhood are intimately familiar with hurricanes, heavy rainfall, and flooding. While much of that rainfall results in nuisance flooding on residential streets, hurricane evacuation routes are also flooding, and that flooding is significant. WFUV's Megan Oftermat went to City Island this summer to check out the hurricane evacuation routes on a rainy day. Driving through City Island on a rainy day 
it's easy to see what residents are talking about. Orchard Beach Drive and City Island Road, the two primary routes that lead people off City Island through Pelham Bay Park, are flooding. And today, it's just drizzling. If our roadways flood, you know, or, or get really pools of water where you've got to, you know, swerve and everything, when it is, you know, no-name storms, you know, like Stormy Tuesday, how are we going to be prepared for what happens going forward into the future? That's John Doyle. He's a 30-year City Island resident, one of the Democratic district leaders for the 82nd Assembly District, and one of the founders of City Island Rising, a nonprofit organization that strives to improve the quality of life on City Island. Doyle says these storms and the resulting flooding are becoming more common. Fernando Torado, the director of new initiatives in the Bronx for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, agrees. He says that since Sandy, superstorms just keep coming. You know, they're supposed to be every 25, 50 years, and it just seems to be happening with greater occurrence. How do you protect your neighbors? How do you protect your family? Uh, how do you protect yourself if you need to get out of a situation? Torado helped the city navigate Hurricane Sandy recovery, and he wants disaster preparedness programs to be proactive instead of reactive. Social cohesion and community connections are an integral part of disaster preparation. If people don't have those resources to connect to during a disaster, they will end up often worse off after a disaster, and it'll take them longer to recover. While people often think of disaster preparation as being infrastructure-focused, Fernando Torado explains that cities should have all sorts of tools in their arsenal. Resiliency is not just about buildings and roads and bridges. Resiliency is first and foremost people. People need to become resilient. And this means asking some tough questions. What were the conditions that made you vulnerable to a disaster in the first place? How does your community or your built environment play a role in that? And what can you do to, to um, improve uh, your own personal resiliency as well as uh, the resiliency of your community? John Doyle, who you heard from at the top, he's also asking these tough questions. And he thinks that the flooding of hurricane evacuation routes out of City Island is one of the primary sources of vulnerability. We've identified all the problem drain spots. We went, we did a walking tour with the mayor's office and our elected officials sent representatives and the community board was there. We brought photos. To, I mean, I have over a thousand flooding photos. Even with the photos, fellow City Island Rising board member David Diaz says progress has been hard to come by. He explained to me that the cluster of city agencies just adds confusion. I reached out to both the Department of Parks and the Department of Transportation to see who's responsible for road maintenance in Pelham Bay Park. They both referred me to each other. I mean, it's, it's neglect, frankly, at a, at a city level. That's John Doyle again. How many wake-up calls can our government be given? If the problem isn't solved, Doyle thinks that residents of City Island could be in danger. And even though these roadways flood, again, City Island, 4,500 people, these are the roadways we're going to have to travel on if we're expected to leave in the site of an emergency, and we're a zone one evacuation area. And it isn't just the flooding that poses a problem. There's only one way 
on or off the island and there's no emergency provision like a ferry service that goes to City Island to help people get off the island if they need to. That didn't exist and that still doesn't exist. That bridge, the City Island Bridge, the only way on or off the island, that actually closed during Hurricane Sandy. Whatever disaster happens on City Island on a summer weekend when, you know, the population is like three or four times that of the residents. With the peak of hurricane season marked in mid-August, this is a pressing question for residents, tourists, and the city. Uh, It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. For WFUV News, I'm Megan Oftermatt. That was WFUV's Megan Oftermatt talking about the flooding of hurricane evacuation routes on City Island in the Bronx. And in sports, the New York Mets keep on showing why they're the kings of Queens. Colin Loughran has the story and more from around the world of sports. That's right. The good times keep on rolling for the Mets. Yesterday, they handily defeated the Philadelphia Phillies by a mark of 6 to nothing. Chris Bassett took home the win for New York as he slung five innings of scoreless baseball while also providing five strikeouts. Offensively, it was a good day for the Amazons. Among other contributions, the Mets got a home run from fan favorite Daniel Vogelbach and a big RBI from Francisco Lindor, who now has set a Mets franchise record for most RBIs by a shortstop in a single season. The Mets begin a huge four-game series with the Atlanta Braves tonight on the road as they hope to keep control of the NL East. Meanwhile, the Yankees were wrapping up a three-game set in Boston with the rival Red Sox, but they ultimately fell by a final of 3 to nothing. Michael Waka made his return for the Bo Sox and was special. He threw seven innings of scoreless baseball and kept the Bombers at bay. Jamison Tyone pitched seven solid innings for New York, but the Yanks just couldn't crack Waka or the Sox pen and ultimately went home with only two hits. The Yankees will hope for some home cooking as they now gear up for a three-game showdown with the Tampa Bay Rays. Finally, on the gridiron, New York Jets quarterback Zach Wilson has been officially diagnosed with a bone bruise and a meniscus tear after leaving Gang Green's first preseason game last week. His status for week one of the regular season is questionable, but the Jets are hopeful that Wilson will be back sooner rather than later as there is no additional ligament damage at this time. With WFUV Sports, I'm Colin Loughran. Thanks, Colin. Every Monday, we give you the FUV Sports Spotlight. It's when we feature stories from One on One, New York's longest-running call-in sports show. This week, WFUV's Andrew Galata and Breach Gotham talk with Nick Zakel. He's a former offensive lineman for Fordham Football who was drafted by the San Francisco 49ers in 2021. You know, speaking of your time with the Rams, you know, here in the Bronx, I mean, is there really one memory or a road trip, a moment that really sticks out to you? Something you'll that'll take with you, not just to San Francisco, but really for the rest of your life? Um, yeah, so I probably have two uh, really big ones. I mean, obviously, the Nebraska game is definitely up there with uh, really cool football experiences. But I'd say my my first start uh, against Central Connecticut back in 2017, I think that was just such a momentous occasion just because. I wasn't really expecting to play much that year. Obviously, we had injuries uh, in that game against Army, and so I was really kind of uh, thrown into the fire. Just a young kid, didn't I think second year playing O line, and just being able to uh, kind of learn from guys like Kevin Anderson, Anthony Coyle, Chase Edmonds, Isaiah Seawright, uh, just those guys 
being able to kind of follow in the lead of those guys really uh, helped me progress as a player and as a person. So I'm really thankful that uh, I was able to kind of be um, in the presence of them as well. But then also I think probably favorite game memory I want to say is uh, Richmond from, I want to say 2018 or 2019, just one, I think 2019 at home. Um, that was a like probably first win against a CA opponent. I uh, just, I think one of, uh, the best games I've been a part of uh, since I've been to Fordham. Uh, I think one of Coach Collins' first home wins, if I'm not mistaken. I think probably second or third, maybe. But I think just that game, it was just a great feeling just because I think uh, not a lot of people picked us to win that game. I think that, uh, especially a CAA program like Richmond, and just kind of be able to take it to them. Now that you're a 49er, what's next for you? I mean, seriously, uh, you know, have they told you what position on the line you're going to be playing? Is it guard or is it tackle? You know, rookie mini camps have to be coming up pretty soon, right? I think they kind of see me more as an interior guy, uh, not really as much as a tackle, uh, whether it be guard or center. I think I've gotten a lot. I've gotten a lot of uh, uh, interest from uh, playing center, which is, would be great, especially uh, learning behind someone like Alex Mack, who I've watched since I was, I want to say, nine years old. When he was drafted by the Browns with those great old lines. I think that's something that I really look forward to, just being able to kind of pick his brain, kind of seeing how he uh, does day-to-day, how he kind of sees the game. I think those are something I'm really excited to look forward to. That was WFUV's Andrew Galata and Bridge Gotham talking with former Fordham football player Nick Sakel about how Fordham shaped his football career. You can listen to One on One every Sunday night from 11 to 2 on 90.7 FM and on YouTube. And that's our show for today. I'm Christina Lulich. And I'm David Escobar. Check back with us tomorrow at 3 o'clock for more news, music, culture, and sports. And tell your friends so they can find WFUV's What's What at WFUVnews.org and wherever you get your podcasts.